You can't serve God and mammon. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon, but you can't serve both. So we see then that, that, that in, at the end of the day, so to speak, those are the two choices. Now, Satan loves to try to muddy the waters, and he tries to, to, to take you know, mammon and, and paint it differently and make it look differently, and, and he loves to make it even sound noble. I've got to provide for my family, all, all these other things. But what we don't, what we don't realize is that, is that a whole, whole lot of God's people on planet Earth are not looking to God as their source. They're looking to mammon as their source. Mammon is where they've put their trust. Mammon is what they look to on a daily basis for their answers, for their contentment. They look to mammon for what they need. They look to mammon for what they desire. They see mammon as their source, not God as their source. Now, this, this, is, this is very dangerous because if you look to money... You will look through the lens of money, which means you will only see as far as money can take you. you, 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 you if, if you look to money, you'll look through money, you'll live through the lens of money, and as long as you've got money and have problems that money will solve, you will be deceived into thinking that everything is okay. But the devil is waiting to jerk the rug out from under you and bring you face to face with a big old hairy problem that money can't do anything about, no matter how much you have. I think it was Howard Hughes, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. He said he'd give every penny he had if he could just receive a healthy man's stomach. So he had all kinds of bleeding ulcers and stomach and digestive issues. He was, I guess, a billionaire, at least in today's economy. But money couldn't fix that for him. And because you look through the lens of money, you can only see as far as money will take you. But aren't you glad God can take you where money can't? Aren't you glad that God can do what money can't do? God can fix problems that money can't touch, that money has no answer for. So this is why Jesus asked the disciples, pay very close attention to the question he asked them in John the 6th chapter, when all these people were hungry. Jesus said, where can we buy enough bread to feed these people? We preached couple sermons on this. I'm not trying to re-preach those messages. But notice what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to expose the trust that his disciples have put in money. And he didn't say, you know, guys, if we only had enough, enough money. They had the money. They had the money. Jesus was given three lifetimes of fortune at his birth. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh from kings. Not to mention all the other people who supported wealthy women who supported, and I'm sure men as well. Joseph Arimathea was a wealthy man who supported and, 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 and financed his earthly ministry. Jesus had plenty of money. Don't believe the religious lies that says he lived as a pauper. Having no place to lay his head had spiritual implications to it. He had no body for his head to rest upon. We are now the body of Christ. He went about in the, in the earth uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, assembling a body upon which he could rest his head. Jesus, did he rough it? Yes. Did Jesus move from place to place to minister? Yes. He, he was a traveling minister. But this idea that he was broken, impoverished, and the clothes they took off of him at crucifixion were garments without seams. 
that soldiers gambled for. He was a sharp-dressed man. Which, again, is, is, a, is a classic example that it's the love of money, not money, the love of money that's the root of all evil. Jesus had money, but he didn't love it. As I heard Keith Moore say years ago, you can love money whether you have a lot of it or have none of it. There are people who have nothing, very little money, but boy, they love it, just like there are people who have a lot of money and love it. But you can have money and not love it. You can have money, let's, let's say it correctly, you can have money and not look to it. So we ask him, he says, <laughs> he says uh, hey guys, because remember it's a pop quiz, right? He's, he's, he's trying to expose something in them. He says, where can we buy enough bread to feed these people? And they're like, if we had so much amount, they said 200 denarii worth, but I'm going to say it this way. Jesus, if there were 14 tractor trailer loads of bread and fish parked right there, right, it wouldn't be enough to feed these people. It wasn't a matter of the money. It was a matter of the inventory. They didn't have, they were out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, sometimes when we just, you know, Thanksgiving, for example, where we'll sometimes have 200 people, you know. Um, we, we go to Sam's Club. I sometimes have to order the case of chicken ahead of time because you can't just go to a, a grocery store and buy a case of chicken. You, know, you, you follow what I'm saying? I, you got that already. But let me, I, get, I get frustrated with people who, who say that Jesus was poor and they didn't have any money and what are we going to do? They had the money. What Jesus was trying to emphasize here was that they had the money, but the money wouldn't fix it. They had the money, but the money... But now notice, because they looked to money, they looked through the lens of money, and looking through the lens of money, they could not find, they could not see a solution. Okay? Now you say, well, Pastor Mark, what in the world does John 17, 5 have to do with this? Notice where they had put their trustee. When I said the devil tries to disguise... By the way, mammon is the personification of money. And I've got a lot of notes on mammon. We're going to get to it in the days ahead. But it's the personification of money. It, it comes from um, a, a, a word that has to do with accumulation. In, in other words, gathering together a bunch to try to find a place of security and confidence in the accumulation of, of wealth. And Jesus says you, you can't serve one. You're either going to, you're either going to respect one uh, and and despise. Remember, despise doesn't mean hate or disgust. It means to treat lightly or to treat less than. Now, I got a long list of these things, and I'm not here to try to beat anybody up this morning. I'm just trying to help you, okay? But what we have to ask ourselves as God's people, who do we give our best to? Do we give our best to God or do we give our best to mammon? We go to bed early on a work night so we be fresh for the boss man in the morning, but stay up to three in the morning on a Saturday and drag into church 40 minutes late. Are you, I mean, are you, are you, I'm, just, I'm just trying to show you. I'm not try, again, I, I told you this so many times. You know, I had a pastor growing up, and he would always fuss about people not being at church. I'm like, dude, we're here. You know what I'm saying? Don't, the, people that, the people that need to hear this aren't here to hear it, so tell us something that will help us, right? You know what I'm saying? So I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just trying to say, you know, 
it's so easy for us to justify looking to uh, money and, and at the same time think that God is our all in all and that he's our number one and, and, and all these other, uh, other things. But yet, you know, do we give our best to God or do we give our best to money? Okay, I, I, that's enough of that for now. Amen, I'm not trying to. So what winds up happening is we, remember, God can only take you as far as your trust in him will allow. And the only way, there's only one way and one way only to learn to trust God. Anybody remember what that one way and one way only is? You got to trust him. You can't, you can't learn to trust God unless you actually trust him. You could write a book about trusting God and not trust God if you've never trusted him. Amen. Amen. So he's exposing. So one of the things that that we see here is ultimately, I'm like, where do we stop? Let's just go all the way back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. Adam and Eve, what was their ultimate sin? We want to do it our way, God. We understand what you're telling us to do, but we want to do what we want to do. So what does that really equate to? You could say pride, you could say rebellion, and and all of that would be accurate, but what it basically boils down to is we want to be in control of our own lives. We we want to call the shots. We 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 we've done it your way. Now we, we want to try it our way. God, surely you understand this. I mean, we you know, we we want to do what we want to do and how we want to do it and and um and 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 so off we go. See, what we don't realize is that we, we trust in mammon because mammon is something we think we can control in the flesh. Are you following me, see? See, what we don't realize is that we've just, we put our trust back in ourselves. When we put our trust in money, see, because we always think, well, you know, I was looking for a job when I got this, and I'll just go get me another job. I'll get me a second job. I'll sell something. I'll this, I'll that. Now we go all the way back to 2022, Right? We're not in a buying and selling economy. We're in a giving and receiving economy in the kingdom. Now, one more time. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. A born-again believer with the blessing of Abraham resting upon their lives is still exposed to and vulnerable to the curse that's still on this planet. As long as that born-again believer's trust is in human beings and the flesh. And notice what he says. He'll be like whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. This one phrase right here. And will not see good when it comes. Will not see good when it comes. So... He didn't say good wouldn't come. He said the, 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 the individuals who have put their trust in man, the individuals who have put their trust in the flesh, those who are looking to this world, who are looking to this world system, who are looking to capitalism, who are looking to their ability to make money, who are looking to the economies of this world, those who are looking to those things, that becomes the lens you look through. And that lens will prevent you from seeing good when it's right in front of you. He didn't say it wouldn't come. He said it would come and you wouldn't see it. 
Now, remember when Jesus preached repentance. But he was preaching a message that John the Baptist preached because John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The 12 apostles preached, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The first 70 missionaries, repent for the kingdom is at hand. What does repent mean? Repent means a new way of looking at things, a, a, a new perspective, seeing things in a way you've never seen them before, looking at things in a way you've never looked at them before. Why? Because if you don't change the way you're looking at things, good is going to come and you're going to miss it altogether. It's going to come and you're not going to see it. Now, in the course of our study, we've been asking this question. How many times did the disciples respond to a new crisis like yesterday's miracles never happened? We, we're, 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 we're kind of driving a stake or two in the ground here for a little while. We're going to camp here for a few minutes because... This right here, I think, is another significant shift that Father is trying to help us make in our lives. Now, Satan is betting on you responding to external circumstances without ever acknowledging internal realities. How many times have we done the same thing? How many times have we responded to new crisis or crises like yesterday's miracles never happened? How many times have we responded to problems and issues in our lives like someone who has not been born again? How many times have we responded like someone who's never read the Bible or heard a sermon? How many times have we responded like someone God has never done anything for? We've all got our stories of things that God has done for us. Do I have the right bunch this morning? Is anybody listening to me that God's ever done anything for in your life? He has, he has done thing after, I mean, it's amazing how he's helped us. It's amazing. And, and listen, I understand there are times where, you know, our level of maturity at the moment, but now looking back, we realize, man, look at what God has done for us. Look at how he's helped us. Look at the miracles. Look at the breakthroughs. Look at the forgiveness. Look at the grace. Look at the mercy. Look at the deliverance. Look at the supernatural intervention. Look at the divine provision. Look at all these different things that maybe in the moment we thought were coincidences. They weren't coincidences. It was divine intervention in our lives. We've experienced these things. You are these things. You've come too late to tell me God doesn't fill in the blank, whatever it is. God doesn't heal anymore. Well, you've come too late to tell me that because he's healed me and I've seen him heal other people. Well, you know, that whole prosperity gospel, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's from the devil. Well, you've come too late to tell me that because God is prospering me and he's prospering people close to me. He's prospering people I pastor. And so, by the way, you look pretty prosperous. If God didn't prosper you, who did? Who did? Who prospered you if you don't believe in the doctrine of prosperity? Oh, that old crazy gospel, that prosperity gospel. Man, you better watch what you, you're getting dangerously close to blaspheming in the Holy Spirit. 
when, when you write off something God has done for you as, as you or the devil or this world or whatever. How many times did the disciples respond to a new crisis like yesterday's miracles never happened? And how many times have we done the same? What's up with this? Why, why do we still... And I've got some verses here. Let's, let's do this. Let's go first to Mark um, 6... Mark 6, and this is the same account that we originally looked at in John the 6th chapter where Jesus fed the 5,000. He took the little boy's lunch. He broke it, gave it to the disciples. The disciples fed the multitudes. And then we see that after the miracle, John's account confirms this as well. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Verse 52 is a very important passage for us to understand. It's a very important passage for us to break down and allow the Holy Spirit to show not necessarily only, I said it this way, how it applied to them, but how it potentially applies to you and me. What's going on here? The disciples have once again experienced a miracle. It was technically, I guess, yesterday's miracle because they're in the fourth watch of the night now and it's become the wee hours of the morning of the next day. But this is about as close as we get between them participating in a miracle and then a new crisis and they act like yesterday's miracle never happened. And notice now, Jesus is walking to them on the water and they can't see good when he's coming. Are you seeing this? They don't recognize him. They do not recognize Jesus. As a matter of fact, the lens that they were accustomed to looking through told them he was a ghost. What lens was that? The lens of... Old wives' tales, the lens of superstition, the lens of sailing traditions. These were men, a lot of them, who grew up on the water. And there was all kinds of superstition, all kinds of, of, of things that, that, that people believed. And when they looked at Jesus, they did not see Jesus coming to them. They saw an omen. They saw death. They saw death coming for them. 
If you read other accounts of this and in other places when they saw, the Bible says they were terrified. They, they were beside themselves. Notice it says they cried out. No offense to any of the young women of faith in the room this morning, but they cried out like little girls. They are screaming and carrying on. And Jesus, I almost, if, if it wasn't so frustrating for Jesus, I almost think that he would have thought it was kind of humorous, but it was, it was too sad to be funny. And he says, oh, hold on, guys, cut that out. It's me. It's me. It's Jesus. But now think about it for a moment. Why could they not see him? Why could they not see him? They couldn't see him because of what they looked to. What they looked to determined the lens that they looked through. Now, I know this may be a stretch to fit. I do not believe it's a stretch to fit. I believe it's the Holy Spirit helping you and me see. If there had been some means by which a man could walk on water using money, in other words, if there was something Jesus could have went and purchased that would have enabled him to, to walk on water and the disciples were familiar with that, they would have immediately recognized him. But see, in their understanding, money could not enable a man to walk on water. No more than money could have fed all them people out in the middle of the wilderness. It was the lens that they looked through, amen? And because it was the lens that they looked through, there was no other perception other than they fell back on those old wives' tales Listen to me now, if you're still crossing your fingers, don't judge these people. If you're still throwing salt over your shoulder, if you're still reading your horoscope, if you're still, uh, you know, take a, a, a turn and go around the block if a black cat walks across your street, if you're knocking on wood and won't walk under a ladder and seven years of bad luck from breaking a mirror and whatever else all that malarkey is, Some of these men are billionaires. If you understand how the NBA draft works, it's not the worst team gets the first pick. It's a lottery. They put all the NBA team's names in a hat, and they draw out, and whoever's name, whatever team's drawn out first, they get the first pick. And some of those men, I don't, I'm, I don't, but some of those men were honest enough to admit that they wear lucky socks or put some kind of good luck charm in their pocket or, you know, don't shave that morning or because three years ago they didn't shave, they forgot to shave, and they got the first pick. So maybe if we don't shave today. See, some of you in here, you, you, won't, you want to let your team, your favorite college team, play football if you don't have that shirt on, that jersey on. Am I right about it? I'm just saying. No, but, but why? What, what's going on here? Because we're looking for something outside of ourselves to give us an advantage. Trying to find something we can do in the flesh. Rabbit's foot. Whatever. You know, y'all are all in trouble today. My team's going to pick first because I didn't shave or shower in three days and I've got my daughter's lucky charm and my grandmother's necklace and um, I meditated for three hours this morning and yoga poses or whatever. Again, it's... It was all superstition. But notice, that's that became the lens. Are you seeing this? That became the lens that they looked through. And that was what they saw. 
Now, some key words here. They supposed it was a ghost and cried out. Supposed means to think, imagine, consider, and appear. So what's being exposed here? Their true thinking. Their, their, how they imagined things, how they considered things, how they looked at things, how things appeared to them. Am I boring you? I'm not trying to bore you. Stay with me just a minute. Notice this next phrase. For they had not understood about the loaves. To understand means to put together in one's mind the pieces. And the idea behind this are pieces of a puzzle coming together that, that portray a new picture. See, Jesus is trying to assemble pieces together in their minds so that they will, what, see things differently than the way they have seen them in the past. He's trying to help them see things the way he sees them, piece by piece, part by part, line by line, line by line. He's trying to build within them a new way of looking at things. But notice he says that they had not understood about the loaves. What does that mean? It means if they had seen or learned the lesson of the loaves, they would have seen him walking on the water and thought it was the coolest thing they'd ever seen instead of seeing a ghost coming to them to drown them all. Now, let's, let's, we're going to finish with this last point. Because their heart was hardened. Because their heart was hardened. Let's jump real quick to the 8th chapter of Mark. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, they're in a boat now, they're in a boat now. Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? What is Satan banking on? He's banking on you facing new crises and forgetting yesterday's realities. He's banking on you forgetting what God has done for you. Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, how is it you do not understand? There's the word again. How is it that you're still looking at it the way you looked at it before? Now, I explained to you last week, how were they looking at it before? How could they participate in a miracle and yet still see things the way they saw them before the miracle? It's because their minds categorize the miracle as an anomaly. Their minds categorize the miracle as something abnormal, as not, the, as not the norm, as not the standard, as not the exception. For them, in their way of thinking, a miracle was still very rare. For them, a miracle uh, was, was not the standard. It was not the norm. It, it was the exception. Are you following me? It was the exception. And so their mind kept doing that, miracle after miracle after miracle, yet they kept seeing things the way they've always seen them because their mind was not putting the pieces together to form within them a new worldview, a new way of looking at things. Instead, they were like, man, thank you, Jesus. That's amazing. Whoa, guys, can you believe he let us be a part of this, right? But the operating system, the mental operating system that they were living by, Mental impulse is now determining, if you remember that from last week, wasn't phased at all by any of this. And so when Jesus asked them, he's like, how is it that your heart is still hardened? Do you not remember? No, he just walked them right through it, this experience, this encounter. And what was it like? And well, they gave the answers. It wasn't like they, quote, unquote, forgot it, but they didn't remember it when 
it was time to remember it, and when remembering it was needed the most. All right, so last thing. A hardened heart. A hardened heart. I don't know what you think about when you hear someone has a hardened heart. But you think of, I I think, at least for me, maybe it's the same with you. When you say, man, she is so hard-hearted. I get the impression of someone who is maybe not kind, who is uncaring, who's, you know, like gruff, um, doesn't care about other people, maybe even rude. Um, you know, that's what, when I hear someone has a hard heart, you know, you think, man, that." But Jesus repeatedly pointed out to the disciples the problem of their hardened heart. Now, if the disciples had a problem with a hardened heart, having experienced and heard all that they had experienced and heard, could it possibly be that some of God's people, obviously none of us in this room, but maybe some of God's people somewhere on planet Earth are struggling with the same problem today? Now, you say a hardened heart. Look at what these men had done. I don't see what I would call typical characteristics of a hardened heart. I see men who obeyed Jesus. I see men who served others. I see men who walked away from their businesses. I see men who walked away from high-ranking position, Matthew, with the Roman government to follow Jesus. I see... see men who are teachable. I see men who are listening. I see men who are committed. I see men who are faithful. If you look at the disciples and read their stories, you don't necessarily see someone that you would categorize as having a hardened heart. And yet Jesus addressed the issue of their hardened heart from day one all the way through to the very to the very last things he's addressing with them is the problem of their hardened heart. So I want to try to help you understand what it means to have a hardened heart in a way that we can relate to so that perhaps we can let the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God do something in our hardened hearts if if there's something there that needs to be done. (laughs) Amen. Praise God. If there's something there that needs to be done so we will know what it is. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready? What does it mean for them to have a hardened heart? It means that they were set in their ways. They were set in their ways. Among other things, I like to bake cheesecakes. And if you've ever, I'm talking about like a sure enough, I'm not talking about one in a box. I'm talking about from scratch, sure enough, trying to replicate something you ate at Cheesecake Factory for $9 a slice. I'm talking about, okay, it's a hobby. Amen. If you know anything about a cheesecake, you have to cook it in a water bath to do it right or else it'll crack. It's so dense and, and you have to sneak up on it being done. Meaning you can't just set it and forget it like a Ronco commercial. I mean, you got you got to monitor it, right? And what you're looking for is for the center to be set. What does that mean? Well, in layman's terms, that means you, you slide it out of the oven and you give it a little shake. And if the middle still jiggles, it ain't set, right? Any bakers in the room? You got to get it set, right? When it's set, that means that it, it it has cooked all the way through to the middle and and now it's it's become firm it's 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 no longer uh and before it sets you could pull it out of the oven turn it upside down and it would just run over in the pan okay all right so i'm trying to give you a visualization of what it means for something to be set when G, why is it why is set in your ways the same as a hardened heart it's because we have well think about it 
again, surely nobody in this room, but you probably know somebody who's set in their ways. And notice we just use that as an excuse. Well, honey, you know, she's just set in her ways. Yeah, but what if we're set in ways that are counterproductive to God's purposes for our lives? What if we are set in our ways and our ways that we've become set in are blinding us to the good that Father has given to us and that he has blessed us with and that is flowing out of us in order to be a blessing to other people? What if we're so set in our ways that we can't see good when it comes? What if we're so set in our ways that we will amen sermons that are meant for us that we never hear a second time, we never give consideration to a second time? What if we're so set in our ways that when God speaks to us as a congregation, we automatically assume that he's speaking to somebody else because there's no way he could be speaking to me? This is what set in your ways will do for you. Set in your ways will make you think you don't have a problem because obviously you've got it figured out, right? And, and, and it must be other people. How about do not be conformed to this world? That's when the world is, is applying pressure to you. Obviously, we could preach a series of sermons on what it means to come as a child. But I think, and you can disagree with me, but I think at least top three, if not the number one reason why Jesus explained to us the importance of becoming childlike in the kingdom of God is because a child has not yet become set in his or her ways. Stand with me this morning, praise God. Look at me for a moment. You are not an old dog. You know the saying, right? Well, you know, honey, he's set in his ways and you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You're not an old dog. You're a new creation. And have been given the Holy Word of God, Jesus himself, as a helper and the Holy Spirit of God as a helper to help you with a lot of things. But I believe one of the number one assignments of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives is to unset our wrong ways and reset them correctly. We need to be reset in our ways. Jesus, like, he's looking at those disciples and he's like, after all you've heard, after all you've experienced, after all you've been a part of, after all you've participated in, how is it that you're still set in the same way of looking at things that you were set in before you ever heard my name or saw my face the first time? It's frustrating. And before we want to come down too hard on them, they had not yet been born again and they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said to them, you're going to be in a better position when I go away because if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and he'll be in you. See, that's why we can't do it without God because what needs to change is in us and we can't get to it without him. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being so patient with us. We see, we see your patience displayed in Jesus. Jesus said, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. And, and we see how patient Jesus was with people who were slow to change, slow to listen, slow to adjust to this new reality of your kingdom with us and among us. But Father, we, we don't want to be a group of your children that causes you grief. We do not want to be, Lord, you got enough kids on planet earth causing you grief without it, without it being so among us, Lord. We, we want to be teachable. We, we want to be, be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to get angry. We, we want to be swift to change, Father, when you bring correction to us. We don't want to automatically assume that you're talking about somebody else when you're trying to get life-changing uh, truth code into our own hearts. Father, I'm asking you, and I'm asking, Father, that you help every person listening to me right now to have the courage to ask you, show us where we have put our trust in man. Show us where we have put our trust in the flesh. Expose it, unset it, and then reset it, Father, because we do not want to be found alive on planet Earth trusting in anything or anybody other than you. Father, help us see supernatural intervention in our lives as normal, as the standard, as what we expect for things to work out, Lord. Not not as an anomaly, not as this rare thing, and we're so grateful, but never change the way we look at things or see things, Father. Reset our expectations. Reset what we call normal. Holy Spirit, reset what we think the standard is for a human being, for a child of God living here on this planet. We've accepted the world standards of normal. We've accepted the religion's world of uh, the the religion's view and version, Lord, influenced by this world of, of what's normal and what should be expected, what's standard. Stretch us, Lord. Show us, Jesus. And may we be pliable and malleable in the hands of your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word, Father. Reshape us. Transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Much love to you and yours. Good things coming. Good things coming. We'll see you on Wednesday, if not before. Praise God.